You are listening to the Change Management Review Podcast, where we bring you the best tactics, strategies, and actionable insights for change through our powerful interviews with change management practitioners and leaders. And now here's your host, Brian Gorman. Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Change Management Review Podcast. I'm Brian Gorman, Managing Editor, and my guest today is Chris DeSantis. Chris is an independent organizational behavior practitioner, speaker, podcaster, and author. With over 35 years of experience working with clients in professional services firms, both domestically and internationally, Chris has gained quite a reputation. Over the past 15 years, he has been invited to speak on generational issues in the workplace at hundreds of leading U.S. law and accounting firms, as well as many of the major insurance and pharma companies. Chris's most recent book is the focus of our conversation today. It's titled, Why I Find You Irritating. And there is a subtitle, Navigating Generational Friction at Work. Welcome, Chris. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So as we were somewhat acknowledging before we started recording here, we're both baby boomers. Yes. As one boomer to another, the only time I really felt I fit that generational definition, if you will, was when I served as a drill sergeant in the Air Force in the early 1970s. Mm -hmm. I think I've spent most of my career since then as a millennial in a boomer body. <laughs> One of the important points you make in your book is that generational differences are real. The problem is not in recognizing and acknowledging those differences, but in stereotyping people based on them. Can you say more about that? Yes, I think it's one of the challenges with the whole topic is because you have to separate what is different between us and what is perceptually different and exaggerated by virtue of what we are seeing typically in the media. And so when I, when I talk about this, especially the young, every, every new crop of young people gets sort of labeled. And as a consequence of that labeling, a lot of the articles that millennials and all around them, I call them the Florida man of generations, simply because uh, if you ever saw an article that had, had the headline Florida man in it, it's usually about something idiotic. And so what we start to do is we associate Florida man with being an idiot. And I'm not thinking that's quite fair or representative of Floridians, but I think millennials suffer from that consequence as well. So the stereotyping is such that we think that of the group, and then we see some anecdotal evidence that might support some of our thinking, and we think we must be right about them. And therefore, then we treat them in that capacity, which becomes self-fulfilling, which is not where we want to go. Early in the book, you identify four caveats that I believe are important for our listeners. I'm going to walk through each of them and ask you to say a little bit about each one. Sure. The first is generational narratives are not destiny. No, the, the, the generation, this isn't who you are. This is who you might be relative to some of the experiences that you had. So in the sense that, to your point earlier, you said, I might, I'm a millennial in a boomer's body. Who you are is really the consequence of those experiences growing up. And not everyone has the same experiences, yet collectively, more of us do than not. So in that sense, that has a shaping of the group, but it isn't deterministic for you as an individual in that group. 
The second one is generational narratives are neither global nor universal. And I think this is so important for us as we more and more work internationally and globally. Yes, here's the problem with that. You, if you're going to play the generational game, you have to play the game in the sense of what was going on in this particular culture. What was the socioeconomics of the time that these people had their awakening, the young people, the children? And then also, what were the flashbulb memories relative to that group? That makes it unique on a cultural level. So it doesn't make it, it doesn't globalize it. Now, I will say one caveat to the caveat is that um, when you're talking about the millennial, uh, in particular in the middle classes in the United States and the upper middle classes in Southeast Asia, uh, South America, and the middle class above in Europe, these children are being raised in a similar parental model. They're being, their parents are highly involved. Their children what I call dialogue. They're getting better educations. They're exploring the world more. They're, being, they're internet savvy in terms of their uh, exposure. I think, and, and I agree with The Economist, I think you're seeing the emergence of a transnational class, a group of like-minded uh, I'd also say highly competitive individuals. Your third caveat is that generational narratives apply primarily to the American middle class. And I think you just touched yes. on that, but if yes. you expanded. Yeah, see, uh, I'm not, I, in my book, I'm not talking about the very rich or the very poor, because I think their lives are distinct from the middle. And, and when I say the middle, it, it's sort of what is common to most of us. But, and what is common to most of us is what we commonly see. So in that sense, what we, don't, we don't have the inter intersection with the very rich or the very poor in the day-to-day, -day, nor does, do we see that publicized in the day-to-day -day of our lives. So this is really about what is uh, the cohort group uh, uh, that you are born around that same time in the range of the middle. What's also interesting as an aside about the middle is Americans, even when we're not in the middle, we claim to be in the middle. Gee, I don't know anybody who does that. Yeah, right. Exactly. Nobody says, oh, yes, I'm very rich or I'm very poor. They always say, oh, no, I'm middle class. I'm pretty yep, middle class. Yep. Your fourth caveat, generational shifts are distinct from stages of life. Yeah, that's the most important one, because people make this, they confuse this. They think, oh, they're just young or I'm just old. These are these are stages of life. And there used to be four. You're a child, a young adult, an adult and an elder. As a consequence of the elongation of life, and the, um, I, I will say the extension of adolescence, the literature now supports six. There's a child, a young adult, an emerging adult, the adult, the elder, and bonus elderhood. So you have these six stages of life and they are unique unto themselves. So you take more risks when you're young and you're more conservative when you're older as a consequence of your experiences. The generational lens is how do you see the world through each of those stages? And that is really relevant to when you were a child in your awakening years, what experiences did you have that shaped you? And I alluded to many of those experiences already. That shaping stays with you. Uh, the, the simplest example that everyone can relate to if they have a grandparent or a great-grandparent who was raised during the Depression, they are obscene in their desire to save things. You see what I'm saying? Nothing gets thrown away. That became habitual to how the experience that they had and that followed them throughout life. We would make fun of it. Why do you have to save that? Why are we saving all that string? You know, what's all this aluminum foil going to? So in that sense, they are in the habit of that, that we think curious relative to who we are. So they are distinct in that. And that's just a simple example, but they are distinctions between the two groupings. You raised several factors that served as catalysts for generational differences, ranging from the return of men from the military after World War II to economic cycles, to the growth of women in the workforce, and so on. 
One that seemed profoundly important as I was reading the book was the end of what you refer to as the covenant between employers and employees. Would you describe what you mean by this and how it has played out in fostering generational differences? Yes, I think the, the covenant, as I refer to it, is there was an implicit agreement between the employee and those who employed them that if you work hard, if you do as you're told, if you sort of answer my needs relative to what we're trying to accomplish, then in fact, I will take care of you as a consequence of that, meaning that loyalty was rewarded after you quit working in the form of the pension. This covenant was the expectation, the implicit expectation between both of these individuals. The problem with that is the covenant, it no longer exists. What we have done is we've moved in from a company man model where you move from wherever I asked you to be. So I would say to you, Brian, as a young man in, the, in my company, I'd say, I need to, you to move from Toledo to New York City. You would have said when, because you would have said that is part of the obligation I have and so now today, what we have is a transactional model where it's more immediate. I, I get something from you. You give something for me in return. There's no expectation of longevity because things can change rather rapidly. This is both in the mind of the employer and it's in the mind of the employee, which is interesting because the young get blamed for not being loyal. That is a misconception. The young are quite loyal to the person they are working for, but they have greater doubt about the organization relative to. So we, when we were young as new employees in the boomer generation, we would have a bad boss and we would say, okay, I'll get another bad boss. Okay, I'll get another bad boss. And eventually I can be the bad boss. And the point being, we were loyal to the organization because we knew that there was a promise that if we worked hard enough, we could move up within it. Today, there is no promise. And my experience with the organization is the person who I'm reporting to. I think I probably followed a career path somewhat parallel to yours. Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to our generation, my brother went to work for a chemical company, he was a chemical engineer, uh, went to work right out of college. That's where he retired. Yes. My sister started with one company, went to another and went back to the first company from which she retired. You and I had more checkered pasts, I think. Well, there is. And I, one of the things I talk about in the book, Brian, because I think we are of the same milk, we are the latter end of the generational wave of boomers. And I make this point in the book that these are not, this, these silos of a, of a category are constructs. We are not precise in that. We are, we are named as part of that category. And we live under the auspices of the earlier behaviors in terms of the traits that everyone acknowledges. But we didn't go through the same experience the front end of the category went. So in that sense, I think we are, we, we, as we flow into the next group, and that would be Gen X, we had some of their experiences uh, at the tail end of our generation and at the beginning of their own. One of the interesting facts that you point out, and I really found this fascinating, and I have to tell you, I have challenged more than one of my coaching clients around this since reading it. You point out that as parents, we raise our children to fit into a different generation than our own. We raise them to fit into their generation. Yet as managers and leaders in the workplace, we expect their generational peers to think and act like they belong to our generation. Yes. Yes. <laughs> what have you found most useful in helping redefine those expectations with your clients? Well, I, I think it's very interesting to your point. I think what's so sad about being young is it's, it, it's incongruent. Your life experiences at home are incongruent with your experiences at work. Because at work, we are, we are in what I will call the tell-do model. 
there's an authority figure. I'm going to tell you what to do. You should do it. But at home, we have raised these children in a, in a dialogue model. I will call engage, discuss. And so the habit they have upon entering work is engaging with you and discussing. But there is no acceptable norm for that as yet in the workplace because managers will look at them and say, whoa, this is not a conversation. This is an order. And so they view this as uh, I will call insubordinate to some degree, or, or why, are you, why are you challenging me? When in fact, they're really, I think, trying to understand what is being asked of them. And further, can we negotiate it? You see, as boomers going to the workplace, we never challenge. And if we did, oh my God, could you, what? Because I said so, you know, there's your answer, because I said so. So we didn't challenge that. Heaven forbid we'd negotiate what we were told to do. <laughs> No, it was due. <laughs> it was just due. It was just due. And it made us congruent. You see, our home life was tell due. Our, our school was tell due. And our work was tell due. We didn't change anything about who we are. The young have to change unless we change to accommodate that. Well, I, I want to explore that with you because you wrote why you irritate me during the coronavirus pandemic. As we've come out of the lockdown and entered what many are referring to as the great resignation how do you see these generational differences reshaping the future of work? Well, it's, it's a very good question because of, of half of us have retired, but the rest of us that are working like to work. And so we'll continue on and we'll continue on in two forms. One is uh, the superordinate worker. That's the person that is really talented in some category that the marketplace is willing to pay. The other part is we are at the top of some of these organizations where we will want to stay. And I think there's a third dynamic that will be in play eventually is that we will come back to the bottom of organizations and we will be reporting to younger people. So we're in there throughout. And I would say if we're going to be in there, we should accommodate the better model of engaged discuss. We should move to a model that is more accommodating to the diverse needs of the group because we are part of that diverse pool. And if we do not leverage sort of the diversity of the uh, basically this population now, we are setting the wrong tone for what our future will be. I, I think, Chris, we're really hearing that from those who are active, if you will, members of the Great Resignation. Mm -hmm. They feel they're not being heard. They feel they're yes. not being valued. They feel they're not being respected. A lot of the work that, that I'm doing these days is around the future of work. And uh, some of it is around what we refer to as the four day work week. Mm -hmm. And that really is a, a metaphor that goes to improving organizational productivity such that you can maintain your output while putting in less hours as an organization. What we tell leaders, leaders say, I don't know how we do this. Mm -hmm. You don't have to right. ask your people, shut up and listen. Right. That's exactly right. It, it, it's so true what you're saying is that, again, a conversation is, is not a challenge. It's, it, it furthers understanding. And you, I, I think we are not, you know what we're living in? We're living in a post-trust society. That's the problem. That we have to start to trust each other a little more because we're hiring capable people who want to do what they need to do to, you know, to succeed, but they need more clarity about what that looks like and how it should be done. And so once, and let them, let them give them the space in which to do that, because we cannot monitor 
that like in, in the way that we used to, you know, the buns on seats approach, because monitoring is micromanaging and that gets the, and factly that suppresses performance, not enhances it. And butts and seats doesn't mean work's being done. No, it does not. It does not. Do, remember the old model that you'd bring an extra sport coat to work because that way it looks like you're there. <laughs> I never did that. <laughs> well, I'd heard about it. <laughs> but I think what what you're talking about is is really important. And I like what you said about post-trust. One of the 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 only acronym in my vocabulary. Is spelled T-R-U-S-T, and it's uh, Judith Glasser's neuroscience-based model for oh, um, I, I establishing like trust. That understanding that, which is the you, the shared success, which comes from those deep conversations. And, and again, I thought of that model as I was reading the book often, because the R is relationship, is seeing the mm -hmm. world through the other's eyes. Yes. Um, all of those things that you're talking about, really are at the heart of building trust. And one of the things that I hear all too often from employees now who are being told, you must come back to the office two days mm -hmm. a week. You must come back to the office three days a week. You must come back to the office, period, mm -hmm. is for two years, my employer trusted me. Right, right. I got the job done and never once were they looking over my shoulder. Right. Why don't they trust me now? It's exactly, it's exactly right. And I'll tell you, the other part of that is that there might be rationale for the choices they're making. You see, one of the things in defense of our generation is boomers are not just saying, I want you back in the office doing this to you. They're saying, inferring, I'm doing this for you because that's where I made my friends. That's the experiences I had. That's how I learned. But they're not giving the reasons for that. They're, they're falling back on their tell-do model as opposed to saying, look, uh, here's what we want to accomplish. We want you to have a network. We want you to have good relationships. We want you to have access to learning. How can we go about this? Our model would be bring you back. What ideas do you have that would, you see what I'm saying? To your point. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, have, have one friend who's made it his mission, if you will, that back to the office, the office becomes a purpose-driven destination. Yes, that's great. That's really great because that, that's where we should be having our collaborative events. In fact, if we had back to the office as mandatory as some aspect of the week, then what also be mandatory is on that day, there, are no, there cannot be a Zoom meeting. They just can't. <laughs> No Zoom meetings. It's it's a Zoom-free zone. Chris, we've spent much of our conversation on generational differences, their roots, and their impact. As change practitioners and change leaders who are the audience for this podcast, our listeners face generational challenges on their teams, with those who report to them, and often with those to whom they report. If there was one key lesson that you could leave for people, what would it be on how you successfully negotiate these challenges? Well, I think it goes back to what you alluded to earlier is that we should get to know each other. And I think there should always be a, an expectation meetings at beginnings of the relationship. And when I say an expectation meeting is, look, um, this is why I love what I do. As a manager, you have to share first because power is asymmetric. And so it looks like a quiz otherwise. So this is why I love what I do. Secondly, I would say, this is my hope for you. I want you to be a better manager, a better leader, a better uh, lawyer, whatever the better is. And then that, what do you want? 
What do you want? And then I asked them what they want to be. And then I would ask them, what do you need from me to be that? And then how do we agree with each other relative to going forward? And my point here is what I'm saying is all around is we get a little acquainted with what each of us wants. This is our motivation. We then understand the rules between us. And then we try to negotiate how do we live in this environment where both of us sort of uh, get, get our needs met. And so I think that it's about surfacing the implicit. And let's, let's get away, away from some of the ambiguity that is inherent in relationships. You've been reading my notes. No, I haven't, but I will adopt <laughs> you. We, 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 um, Terry Moulton, the, the editor-in-chief of Change Management Review, and I teach a consulting skills course for change practitioners. And what you're talking about is one of the mod modules we teach. Oh. <laughs> the importance of moving from implicit to explicit expectations. The importance of really understanding the other's passion and purpose. Yes. Yeah, because because if if you understand that you can align your expectations and, and your needs with that, you're addressing quality of work, you're addressing productivity, you're addressing engagement, you're addressing retention, you're addressing all of those challenges that are really driving leaders and managers pulling their hair out during the great resignation. The other thing you're talking about, which uh, also I think is so important is the recognition that the people that work with us and the people that work for us are not interchangeable cogs. They are not the roles that are attached to them. Mm -hmm. They're much fuller, much richer, much more skilled, much more everything than that. And so building those relationship connections that go beyond the role becomes so important because I'll do a lot more for Chris mm -hmm. than I will do for the sales manager. Yes. Well, if, if I may add to that just for a moment, because um, this plays to teams uh, and, I, and I bring a chapter of this because it's addressing exactly what you're saying is that if we are all unique, I have a chapter I call lopsidedness. And I call embracing our lopsidedness. I, I like the title only because it shows we are all imperfect, but we are perfectly imperfect and that we each bring something interesting to the table. And so to your point about engagement, if I could find out what is unique about you in terms of the contribution you make to this team, how do I leverage that and maximize that leverage? And then you will be further engaged. And then the team becomes complementary to each other as opposed to redundant. And this is where role comes in. If we're all accountants, we're all redundant. But if we're all, I'm an accountant who's good with details. I'm an accountant with good with, uh, with research. I'm an accountant who's good with presenting. I'm an accountant who's good with clients. These are all different skills within that. And that's what I'd like to elevate that uh, identifies and appreciates that uniqueness. Chris, any final words for our Oh listeners? my gosh. I, I know I've been running on listeners, so I really <laughs> apologize. Here. So, no. no, 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 no. It's been so nice to allow to have this opportunity to sort of discuss some of these points with uh, somebody who is in my camp. I mean, we are, we are the like minds here, Brian. I Absolutely. Quite Absolutely. a ple pleasure to be with you today. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise, very much appreciate your book, your wisdom, and for sharing it with us. So thank you very much, Chris. Thank you, Brian. How do people reach you? Well, they can find me at my website, uh, CP Desantis, and uh, 
Com, and that'll give you a sense of my other areas of expertise and access to the book. You can get the book through Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Books a Million, or you can listen to my podcast with my friend, uh, Mary Abijay. And we talk about, by the way, if you ever have a question, send me a question to Cubicle Confidential and I'll answer it on the air. Great. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Brian. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Change Management Review Podcast. Be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.